everybody. Welcome to this special bonus episode of the Northern Spin Podcast. I'm Michael Taylor. As ever, I'm joined by Chris Maguire, but in an extra special bonus edition, we've got Naomi Timperley. Now, Chris, you're a tech journalist. You know Naomi quite well. How would you describe our esteemed guest today? Well, Naomi can talk for herself and she really can talk for herself. But if I was to describe her, I would say that everybody knows Naomi. She's like the Kevin Bacon of the tech sector in the North. You're only ever six stages away from somebody who knows Naomi. And I'd also say, and Naomi, correct me if I'm wrong, you're quite outspoken, aren't you? If you, if you think something, you say it. Would that be fair? Yes, definitely. Right, so I, I've got a, I've got a particular vote of thanks for you, Naomi, because when Chris asked me to do this podcast, I was in two minds about doing it. I was quite busy at the time, and some people said, "Don't do it." You were one of the people who said, "No, you should. You bring something to it. Your contrast will actually work really well." And I have to say, thank you because I think you were right. Well, she's patting me on the back for that. Thanks very much for that, Naomi. But I thought you were outspoken. You haven't said anything yet. I haven't. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm very, very excited to be here. Now, listen, I was triggered to um, to invite you onto our podcast, Naomi, because it's one year since the horrendous invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin's Russia. And a lot of us, you know, we, we wanted to show solidarity with the people of Ukraine. We wanted to do something. And you did. So you, you took in a Ukrainian family into your home. And I was just intrigued as to how that's gone for you. I saw your LinkedIn post about it. And I thought, well, let's get you on the podcast to talk for yourself about about the experience of taking a family in and what that's been like and how they're, how they're doing now. It's been um, incredible, actually. Um, it wasn't an easy process. So we signed up for the Homes for Ukraine scheme, um, but then didn't realize that actually you then have to sign up for another website uh, for which there was many, uh, where you advertise that you have a, a spare room. Um, and we put um, a, an advert on and um, straight away, I think the first person that got in touch with me was Lilia, who's the daughter who, who's living with us with her mum. At the time, she was they were living in Italy, so this was in May of last year. Um, and they eventually came to us on the 28th of September. So we have Lilia and Natasha, um, Lily is 23. Um, she did um, a degree in international business with Chinese. Um, and her mum, Natasha, is 43. Um, they both celebrated birthdays with us uh, and Christmas. And, um, you know, we were very lucky that we had the space in our house to do it. Um, I remember picking them up from the airport um, in the afternoon of the 28th, came home, had a quick brew, and we went to the local Ukraine meetup. Um, and yeah, so I, I wanted them to sort of meet other people. Um, I met some other host families as well, um, and then came home and we've got some dear friends, um, who are Ukrainian and they've been over here for about 20 years. So they were made to feel very, very welcome. Um, we've got the space to be able to do it and they're both working and, you know, they, to be honest, they don't want to be here. They want to be home yeah. in the Ukraine. Um, and you know, we've seen tears um we've seen laughter and we've tried to to welcome them as much and we, we said to them first thing we said to them when they came is we want you to feel like this is your home and um i'm trying not to cry now actually because yeah. at christmas they actually said that we feel like this is our home yeah well it's in, it's it's an incredible act of generosity that you've done and you know it's dependent on the on people like you reaching out to do this I, I think it's absolutely amazing so fair play to you for, for doing that Naomi how, how do they how do they stay in touch with people back home and are, are they getting like harrowing news from the front and stuff like that so um they 
speak to family all the time. Um, my husband was saying to me um, a couple of months ago, um, Natasha was on um, Zoom with, not Zoom, uh, on FaceTime with um, her cousin who is fighting. Um, and, you know, she was talking to him. He's like, you know, full on army gear, gun, hat, yeah. everything. And, you know, waving at Max. Yeah. And it's so weird because it's like, you know, it's happening. Um, their, their family are from a part of Ukraine um, and where they where their homes are is near the Russian border, but they have other family near the Hungarian border. So when they left Italy, before they came to us, they went back to that part. Um, but they did, didn't did feel safe being there. And, you know, the, the, the daughter ha has got trauma from it. Yeah, okay. um, but they, you know, we've heard stories about, you know, family and friends um, having, being tortured. Yeah. Um, it's very real, but then also on the other side of the coin, you know, the cousin, um, he, he's got very basic equipment. So they, they bought him a new helmet. They bought him night goggles. Um, yeah. so it's very, very real. Can I ask a question, uh, Naomi, because you mentioned how difficult it was. I do some work with a, an amazing guy called Steve Morgan, the founder of Red Row, uh, for a uh, very well-known philanthropist. He runs the Steve Morgan Foundation. I'm not talking out of turn when I say that he was absolutely horrified by what was happening a year or so ago in Ukraine. And he tried to um, bring about to fly over a thousand Ukrainian, doesn't use the term refugees, doesn't mm. like the term refugees, yeah. but he was willing to pay to put him in accommodation, et cetera, et cetera. And it's fair to say it was very, very difficult bureaucratically. He found it very, very difficult as well. So the terms of you bringing these two people into your home, originally it was to be for a six-month placement, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And there was all this stuff about do you get paid? Not that you do it for reasons of getting yeah. paid, but clearly there was a cost to you. And then there were stories about at the end of the six-month period, what happens? Because obviously if you've committed your home to six yeah. months, you don't want to be in a position where you're the person who says, we don't want you in our house anymore. Yeah. How do you deal with that? And can you talk about the practical basis of bringing them into your home? Yeah, yeah. So we had to, um, we had a, a spare bedroom. Um, we've got, um, you know, spare other rooms in the house. So they have like their own lounge and we bought them a telly and, you know, we want it to make it as comfortable as possible. Um, but yeah, practicalities wise, you get a, um, a, a payment of £350 a month for up to 12 months from the council. Traffic council have been incredible, mm -hmm. I will say. So, you know, very, very quickly, um, they were able to get um, the um, necessary paperwork so they could go and work, um, which they are both working. Um, it was... You know, they had like Natasha, the mum, doesn't speak any English at all. She's learning English and, and I've never seen anyone so determined. She's got like post-it notes everywhere. Um, she's learning English. The daughter speaks perfect English. Um, but the traffic council made them feel incredibly welcome. We get people coming over and, and checking. Um, I feel very protective of them. Um, as does my husband. Um, but yeah, it has, it has, it hasn't been easy, but I will say that, that, um, you know, we, when we first signed up, up for it, um, yeah, we thought it would be six months. I think that very first Ukrainian meetup when I met some of the host families and they said, you know, it would be more likely that it would be a year. And actually I think a year is a much more reasonable amount of time. Um, we've had the conversations with them and they know after a year, um, that they will look for, um, a, you know, an affordable home. Um, again, Trafford Council have been 
very supportive ab about options that might be available to them. Um, but we always know, and we made, we've made them know and had those honest conversations. So, you know, I know that they will be with us for a year and I'm quite happy for that. Yeah. It's unbelievable situation. And again, I can only, only say I'm in absolute awe of your commitment to making people's lives better. Um, my wife Rachel is involved in a works for a charity, and we've got a program refugee support to get to support refugees who've started their own businesses. And one of the really real misconceptions that we had to conquer on that when we were when we were running the program, and I was a volunteer and mentored a, someone from from Yemen. We have this perception that these are people who've kind of crawled out of a cave that's been bombed, and that they're you know they're destitute and they can't do anything, you know. My uh, my mentee, Hanan, her father had been the transport minister of Yemen, you know. Mm -hmm. Th these are people with huge capabilities who are absolutely determined to make a good life for themselves. They don't want, like, you made a really good point at the beginning, they don't want to be here. No. You know, they want to be back home making their life yeah. in their home country uh, with the bonds that they've got. Um, we've just got to make it as comfortable as possible for them in, in yeah. that time. No, absolutely. It's like, um, you know, Lilia has got this amazing degree when she came over here, I, was, she's, I said, you know, what do you want to do? And she said, I want to be a barista. That's what I was doing when I left university. Before the war started, I want to make coffee. I love coffee. And, um, you know, I said, well, you've got this amazing degree. Do you? And she said, no. She said, I, I mentally, I can't cope with anything else. Yeah. Um, the mum has a degree in engineering. And does, does she make you nice coffee? At home, she just got one of those cafetiers. We have got a coffee machine, but it's broken. Max can and fix <laughs> yeah. it. Um, but you know, they, they they make lots of things. But you know, she she wanted to work as a barista. So um, you know, we got. I put. I remember. Um, you know, she was struggling to get something. She'd seen advertisements and she'd um, applied for a couple of things and wasn't getting anywhere. So I put something on um, LinkedIn and. Lots of people tagged in things, and, and David Pryor, a guy who works for Prolific North, um, his local coffee shop, LD24 in Altrincham, were looking for a barista, um, and she's now working there. Um, the mum um, has has always sort of done um, cleaning and um, nannying. Um, she got pregnant when she was quite young um, after doing a degree in engineering, um, but was a single mum. Um, she probably would have been an amazing um, engineer. She's incredibly bright, uh, but again, she just wanted something that would 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 be not easy. She's cleaning twenty rooms a week at the Premier in Old Trafford. Wow. Um, you know, twenty rooms a day, um, so it's not easy. But they both work, um, and you know, they contribute to the householders. As in, you know, they they make things, they make food, um, and they are part of our family. And it's it's funny actually because I I work for myself, so sometimes. I'm working in the evenings um, and different times of the day. Um, and Max almost has like this other family that he eats with now, <laughs> um, which is great. Aww. It means I don't have to cook all the time. But, you know, it, they have, I would say they have enriched our lives and I've learned loads. So, you know, I remember Lilia coming and um, she had uh, lovely nails and she said about my daughter's nails, she said, oh, how much does it cost to get your nails done over here? And I said, it's about 30 quid. And she saw in the Ukraine, it was seven pounds which is very cheap, cheap to us. But actually, subsequently, it turns out that the national average wage is about £250 a month. So £7 is actually quite a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. So well, I tell you, Naomi, that amazing insights into, um, into into what you've done for 
that family have come to stay with you from Ukraine. So thanks for that. But while we've got you, there's lots more that we can talk about in the world of Naomi Timperley. So tell us a bit about what's been going on. You've been at a round table this morning about International Women's Day, which actually isn't until next week, but it's kicking things off. You, you do some amazing things, yeah. by the way, to get women involved in the tech sector here, here in Manchester and, and, and further afield. So tell us about that. So I, I do, I wear a couple of different hats. Um, I'm helping and supporting businesses to grow. So I do that with uh, We Are GSI, which I run with Vikash Shah. So we work with um, lots of different businesses around growth strategy, um, whether they want to come up with new products or services. I'm like design sprint trained. Um, so I, I love that early sort of idea concept, um, getting people into new markets, that type of thing. And then on the other side, I'm, I've designed and developed and delivered several entrepreneurship programs. Um, so both very different, but going back to sort of digital skills and women in tech, um, through Tech North Advocates, um, I've been really lucky to be able to uh, be given a, a platform. Um, so massively, um, you know, supportive of women coming into the sex sector because we've still got very, very low numbers. Um, and I think that starts from schools um, going through to, you know, not everybody goes yeah. down the path of, of university, but I think it's, it, it's, it's important that, that um, people are highlighting um, that actually there is, is is a place for women in the tech sector. Well, if there's going to be a, a, a tech industrial revolution in this country, it's an opportunity that should be open to everybody. Yeah. Well, the thing, I think one of the things that I highlight when, especially when I go to schools, is actually the first thing I do is is, is um, talk about um, digital touch points in, in everyday life. Um, you know, you go to the supermarket now and there's technology, you, 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 you know, you, the way you bank, um, and young people um, don't realize that they can be part of that journey and be part of developing and designing um, technology of the future. Um, and I think when you talk about it like that, you get people excited, especially yeah. um, young girls. Fantastic. So, Chris, um, I, I was also wanting to ask Naomi about your appearance on Dragon's Den, unless you've got something else. To yeah, to there's ask. a couple of things. Well... <laughs> I think if we talk about 2008 first, you appeared on Dragon's Den with your business, uh, Baby Loves Disco. I actually looked at some videos over the weekend as well, and it's basically babies like drinking milk, and instead of having a disco at 3 o'clock in the morning, you have it at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It does what it says on the tin, Baby Loves Disco. So you actually got offered some investment from Deborah Meaden, but turned it down, but stayed in touch with her. So just cast it back. What's it like being there? on Dragon's Den, facing the dragons, where Deborah Meaden goes like that for the purpose of the uh, tape. I'm now tapping my fingers on the table. How nerve-wracking is that? Oh, it's terrifying. But I'll, I'll wind back. So go back to 2007 when I first ca I first came across Babel of Cisco. It was an American events company in 27 cities Amer across America. And I hadn't been to a disco since I'd had kids. It's a disco and nightclub. Um, and, uh, I, I, yeah, and I saw it and I was like, wow, this sounds amazing. And I just emailed them out of the blue. Um, and then that was in the January of 2007. Fast forward to September 2007, we launched in London and Manchester. We'd already had a two-page spread in the Saturday Times Knowledge Supplement. Um, so I'd gone from being like a stay-at-home mum, which I, I took time out to, to spend with my kids, which I was incredibly lucky to do. Um, to then the next year being, you know, contacted several times by the BBC saying, we think that you should do Dragon's Den. And I did it with my American business partner. 
Um, and it was when they filmed it at Pinewood Studio. So it was very exciting going down to London. Oh, not Pinewood, but outside. Um, they were filming um, a film called Wolfman at the time with Anthony Hopkins. I, there was lots of people dressed up as wolves. Um, and yeah, it was absolutely terrifying. Um, everyone that we were pitching with um, was supposed to pitch the week before, but one of the dragons was taken ill. So we assumed that we would be the last people to pitch. Um, they recorded us going up the fake stairs. Um, and then we went into the green room, plastered with a load of makeup to make myself look half decent. Um, and then I remember me and my American business partner would only practice the pitch the night before because he'd only fl just li literally flown in from Philadelphia. Uh, we'd had a quick pint of Guinness at, uh, at the, the hotel bar, um, trying to guess who else was pitching at Dragons the next day. And um, so I remember this producer sitting with us, production assistant, um, who was looked very concerned that he thought we were going to completely flop it. We were the second people to pitch. So um, you never see the people that have pitched previous and went in and got offered £100,000 by so, Deborah. So who was out? Did someone say, I'm out? Yeah, they all said out. Um, except Deborah Median. Except for Deborah Median, you know. Who were the others? It was James Kahn. Um, um, Peter Duncan, Jones would have been on. Peter Jones, he would have been Peter on. Peter Jones, um, Theopathetus, uh, who was lovely. Um, the Scottish one. I'm Ballantine. not even going to say his name because he, he wasn't very nice. But <laughs> it's a TV show, so you know. But we it's were theater, in there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is, and we were in there. I think it was an hour, an hour and forty-five minutes. And, and obviously they, but they cut reduced it down. that down to about yeah. three. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can I ask you. I want to talk about Stephen Barlow, who's now a dragon. But but do you think programs like Dragons Den and The Apprentice? Do you think they're good or bad for business? Good question. I can't watch Dragons Den anymore. Um, and I know lots of people that have been on The Apprentice. Um, I think The Apprentice is is a joke. I think it's, it's actually, it makes me cringe every time I watch it now because they, especially the women, they get them to wear the suits and the, the matching dresses and high heels. I don't know any women that wear those outfits, yeah. but just going back to Dragon's Den, you know, I remember um, speaking to somebody um, who was going on it a year later and that person had practiced their pitch about a hundred times. And to get the adrenaline rush, had run up and down the corridor of where, their workplace. So put it, themselves under enormous pressure. And yes, there have been some fantastic successes, but there's also been things like Tangle Teaser. They didn't get investment and it's like a worldwide company. So it is, again, as long as you sort of know that if you're gonna do it, it might be you're doing it for a bit of PR, but they will edit it. I, I spoke to a guy who was on it a couple of weeks ago and he was really disappointed about how he was edited. And I said, what did you expect? It is a TV, it's an entertainment TV show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the thing I blame The Apprentice for more than anything is young people going around with their phones, holding them like this and yeah. speaking into them on speakers. I, th I blame The Apprentice yeah. for that. Unless The Apprentice has just been really zeitgeisty <laughs> and doing what the kids do. But I never saw it until they started doing it on The Apprentice. Yeah, it's really it's rubbish, it's isn't it? It's really irritating. But, but I think the point you make as well about the way it portrays women um, in business as well, and they come up with phrases like, and, and men do as well, I'll walk over anybody to get what I want in life. And actually, you can be nice and successful in business and in life in general. Yeah. And what The Apprentice does, uh, lesser so Dragon's Den, 
but all these reality TV programs. It's the reason why I've said I'm not going to go on Love Island, Naomi. Um, <laughs> I'm really disappointed. I know, I know, because I am just not going to sell my 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 integrity to the highest bidder. But what it does is it creates the impression that you've got to have a six pack yeah. to be popular to other people. Yeah. You've got to, you know, look great. You've got to have a full set of hair. You've got to be all these things. I don't like it. Um, Stephen Bartlett. Okay, so Stephen Bartlett is one of the new dragons. He's been on, I think, for about a year, 18 months. Um, been in the news quite a lot recently, actually. So just if you haven't listened to last week's podcast, there was a, we mentioned him. He sold his business with Don, with the Don McGregor social chain. He sold it, I think he exited 2019. He may have left in 2020. The business has recently been sold again um, for a headline figure of 7.7 million, albeit there's a potential earnout depending on performance of about another nine and a half million. That brings it up to about 16 and a half million. There's somebody that we both know, an entrepreneur called uh, Timothy Amu, well-known entrepreneur, nice guy. He went public and he basically said, well, hang on a minute. He sold his business, he said, for 600 million US dollars. That's what he described himself as on Dragon's Den. And yet this story said he sold his business for 7.7 million pounds. So he's successful, but not as successful as he claims to be. And that's the basis of the critical coverage that Steve Bartlett's received in the Times that has said he's not the tycoon he claims to be. My question, so I guess to you, Naomi, sorry to interrupt Chris, if that's the direction you were going in, is, is that a problem? Um, yeah, it is a problem. Um, smoke and mirrors. Um, I think, you know, he should be incredibly proud that he, you know, going back to what you said, the figures, £16 million, um, you know, a sale of a business, I think is an incredible achievement. But saying to, to publicly to people um, that you have um, sold a £600 million business is a completely different dollar. story. Actually, in fairness, I think it's $600 million. He always said dollar, didn't he? Right. But whatever Six, he said. Yeah, it, it's, it's $600 million it, pounds. Yeah, it, I think it's it's a misconception. I think it's, it's people bought into that. Um, obviously, it's been incredibly su successful for him because it's allowed him um, to, uh, you know, do incredible things. Dragon's Den. Yeah, Dragon's Den. And, I, and you know what? I think it's great to have um, a, a young man on, on Dragon's Den. Um, I think it, I think I think it's fantastic. Um, but, you know, just going back to um, this 600 million pounds or dollars. Um, you know, it's not true. And I think, you know, it's really interesting. I saw when the first, this conversations first came out that actually very, very quickly, Dom changed his Twitter bio. Um, Dom McGregor, co-founder. Yeah, um, I'm sure um, Stephen did, uh, but I don't follow him anymore, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, I think people think that they have to build something, but, you know, let's not forget that actually he's very cleverly built his personal brand. Um, over the last couple of years and you know I, I, I'm not I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that um, but people have bought into that 600 million dollars yeah I get what you're saying so I've, I've done loads of stories over the years about business people who fake it till they make it I, I what where I think it's dangerous is people then think you can cut corners that it's easy that they go for the lifestyle with a Range Rover Evoque and the you know the, the trendy office with the beanbags and the strip floors and all the rest of it was actually the reality of starting a tech business and running it and it's tough, isn't it? You know it, you know it yourself. You, you live and breathe it with the sort of people you, you meet yeah. day to day. It's incredibly tough. I saw this a great video actually um, on Twitter yesterday. It was a an old steam train and it was just basically saying this is like life as a startup. And there was uh, in the 
steam train was going quite slow and there was um, a train um, wooden thing, I can't remember what they're called, um, in the way. So the guy had to run off the train, remove it and then quickly jump on the train. And then he saw another one and he had to hit the other one off with this other bit. And that's what life is like. And I think, yes, you're right. I think people think, oh yeah, we need the big fancy office and a big fish tank and a a bean and a a bean bags and and slides. Uh, That doesn't mean that you're a good business person. Um, and, And actually... It isn't easy. It's incredibly difficult. Um, you know, I've worked with lots and lots of um, very early stage founders who read um, through that smoke and mirrors and they, they think it's going to be easy and it's not. Yeah. It really isn't. So, so just to bounce it back to me and Chris then, we're, we're journalists. I've recently got back in the game, having had a period outside of journalism. Um, do you think we've got a responsibility as journalists not to fall for the hype and actually to be a bit more sceptical and write stories about businesses that aren't what they claim to be? Can I just come, can I just come in there as well? Because that was a question I was going to ask. I was going to answer my no, question. No, I was gonna, because because um, Timothy Amu basically said, he wrote, journalists lapped it up because the truth is... Um, I get a free you, pass because I wasn't around. Yeah, if you say something enough times, people will believe it. And yeah. in last week's podcast, Northern Spin, um, which which yeah, actually a massive supporter of, um, Michael called me to task and basically said that people like you, if you like, believe what you're told. And as a consequence, you create this myth. I, I've always said Stephen Bartlett is successful. He is successful. He is, he is absolutely. Is, is he as successful as he may be portrayed? Probably not. Stephen Bartlett, if you want to come on this show and give us your side of the story, you are more than welcome. What's he successful at, Chris? That's the point. I think you made the point last week. Uh, self-publicity. Yeah. He, That's the main thing, isn't it? Can I, I mean, get a word in edgeways? <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to answer really, really quickly. I did ask Naomi the question. Yeah, absolutely. Just really quickly, right? I think, yes, journalists have a responsibility. It's all about doing due diligence. But I also know... And I, you, you mentioned this last week, Chris, is, is actually the amount of stories and the press releases that you get. Do you have time to do that due diligence? I think I think if people are making really bold claims, I think you have to. But it would take literally a couple of minutes to go onto company's house um, and actually, you know, you can go onto other um, websites that are available um, to see how, how many. Sh- I knew this stuff years ago because I do, I do due diligence. And, and it's not rocket science, but I appreciate that not all journalists have the time to do that. You can't check out every single person. Yeah, it was falling for the hype, though, isn't it? Yeah, because there's is. some absolute wrongins trying to manipulate journalists in but order is... to put themselves in positions of responsibility. Yeah. and it's our responsibility then to call that out. Yeah, it, and it's that brand. It's it's yeah. because you you if you've heard it more times and people keep saying, "Oh, that person's amazing, amazing, amazing." You you kind of try you want to believe it, but I do think you know, and I've called this out before. I've done uh, several roundtables, and a lot of people are too scared to um, to say it. The emperor's not partic- wearing any clothes. No, yeah, but there's there's one particular. Um, I think it was White Cap Consulting. Um, I did actually talk about this, and I it was, I don't like it. I don't like that smoke and, and mirrors. I think people need to be their authentic selves and not try and be something that they're not. And do you know what? Yes, you've got the whole thing about fake it before you make it. And Steve is a an incredible entrepreneur. He is successful. He doesn't need to say that he had a six hundred million dollar pound pound dollars. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? He didn't need to do that. But what it does, you see, is that it creates the impression that if you're successful, you've got to tell the world that you're more successful. And that's what I don't like because that's what social media does. You talk about authenticity as well. So a lot of footballers have got managed accounts 
And they'll do this thing about that was for the fans, kiss the badge, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. But actually, that's not them. That's an agency that they use. Mm -hmm. We talk about people like, say, Stephen Bartlett, very prolific on social media as well. And there is that question of, okay, how authentic is that account? And that's a concern that I've got. Can I just say as well, the one thing me and Michael won't do is we'll never exaggerate how important we are. But we were number eight in Belgium last, last week. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd be impressed by that. Number 10 in Bahrain and number 24 in the UK. We're going to be big in Ukraine next week on the back of this podcast yes, as well. As, as Chris said with one of his acceptable dad jokes, it puts a new angle on Belgian waffle. Yeah. Anyway, so Naomi, I want to, I want to ask you about Tech Nation. So... You can probably explain a little bit more of the back detail because I'm not as up to it as, as obviously you are. So Tech Nation is an organization, government sponsored to provide support and help and advice for businesses. They had, a, they had an office in the bonded warehouse in Manchester, is that right? Yeah. Yep. And they had their uh, support cut and the contract's been handed over to Barclays Eagle Labs. Why is this an issue? Um, I think... There's a couple of things. So am I comfortable about a bank having it? Not really. Um, but I do recognize that Barclays Eagle Labs have done some incredible work with entrepreneurs. I think they've supported, um, I think I'm sure I saw a figure, it's either 4,500 or 9,000 entrepreneurs. Um, I know people that work at Barclays Labs, Eagle Labs. You know, I'm not saying that they don't do stuff, they do. Should they be given a gov government contract it leaves a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth. I get why they were given it. So if you sort of um, read read um, why, the reasons why, there was a, a press release that went out um, last, um, last week. So they are offering what they say is more value for money. Um, they're not charging for their staff's time. So that's like, um, you know, I think Tech Nation's um, company accounts um, last year said six and a half million pounds after pension contributions, et cetera, et cetera, was on salaries. Um, Tech Nation did some incredible programs. Um, I think I remember my fondest memories were when it was Tech North. So Tech North uh, were very much um, truly um, supportive of the North. Um, so, you know, very, um, you, you, they were Newcastle, Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool, and you would see them in those cities and they were very, um, you know, active um, in supporting entrepreneurs. And that obviously it was then sort of squished into Tech Nation. Um, was it the same? I'm not sure it was, um, but they have supported a huge amount of entrepreneurs. Um, are they responsible for the unicorns that we have? Again, if we go back to Smoke and Mirrors, um, yeah, a little bit, but not completely. They're not the complete reason as to why we've got you know, organizations like say the Hut Group, for example, um, and other um, unicorns. Um, but I do believe um, that they have a built a community. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Mo Aladu, who's, uh, you know, worked uh, specifically in the Northwest, Kane Fulton in Leeds. Um, I'm absolutely devastated for them. I've seen the hard work that Elizabeth Scott's put into it. Um, I'm sad that they couldn't try 
and keep it going. Um, yes, I think they would have had to make some big staff cuts, but I do think that they could have had the existing programs. And actually, I think there's a value. I know they started charging for some of them. I think there is a price that, that actually they, they could have kept on with it. Um, so, yeah, in a long, long-winded way, um, I, I feel slightly uncomfortable about no, it. No, in, in, a, in, a very, in a very thorough and perceptive way, I think, okay. if I can correct you on that. That's, that's excellent. Thank you. So my mate Dave reckons, right, so my, yeah. my mate Dave Parkin, former uh, founder of the Business Desk, where I work now, he he wrote his piece last week, say he's very skeptical about the role of city councils in supporting businesses. He thinks they should just get out of the way. I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing unfairly, but that um, that the, the serious businesses, like the ones that you referred to, AO.com and THG, they they won't have been founded as a result of signing up to a council program, programs that things like the growth company in Manchester will support, that actually the only businesses that go to them are grant chasers. That That is an, an opinion and that is a perception of people who are starting businesses that actually, if you're serious about it, you're not, gonna, you're not the sort of person that would go to one of these government-backed or council-backed programs. Well, is that unfair? I think it is a little bit unfair. So, you know, if we go back to Tech Nation, that, is, that was a government-funded support program. And there are loads of different government-funded support programs. You've got things like Help to Grow, which is run through universities, which was, um, you know, brought up by Bayes, which is now called something else. Um, you've got the growth program. If we're talking about actual councils, as in physical councils and people from the council, I would say the one that I, that it highlights to me the most is Leeds City Council. Right. So, Which is actually the one Dave was yeah. talking about. So Leeds City Council, actually, um, you know, from what I've seen, I, I sit on the board of Women in Leeds Digital. Um, and um, Eve, um, who is in charge yeah. of... Uh, Eve Roodhouse. Eve Roodhouse is incredible. She, she is, she's not just a, a, a voice. She actually goes to, goes to things. She's a big part of, um, you know, what's happening in the Leeds Digital uh, Festival. Um, you know, she's very supportive of Wild. Um, but she, she isn't just, you know, she's yeah. not just far, she's very much in touch with what's going on in the city. And, and actually, you know, is that happening in Manchester? Probably not as much. Right. I'd like to, but Manchester's slightly bigger. And obviously we, we've we got Greater Manchester Combined Authority. Um, yeah, so I think it's a little bit unfair of okay. Dave. <laughs> right. I'll, I'll get a message to Dave to tell him. So Chris, we've got Naomi for a few more minutes. This has been a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. A bit different from what we normally talk about. Yeah, and Naomi. About um, politics, maybe. You, you're being far too modest. But um, what number did you come in at on the Computer Weekly Women in Tech? list well last year was fourth but the year before i was third oh, yeah. no. <laughs> and, and do you know what it's something that i'm incredibly proud of because i worked in tech recruitment in the late 90s and i used to read computer weekly when it was like a physical magazine so it's something that i'm super proud of i don't care and i'm not I, do you know it's great to get recognition for something but something that really matters yeah me. And, and, and just to give you some huge credit as well, because you're much too modest, is that um, you're a mentor to a lot of people, both um, overtly and, you know, behind the scenes where people contact you and ask for your help. I mean, obviously, MT over there asked if I was worth working with and you agreed that I was. And now we are international global superstars in Belgium and Bahrain. Um, I'm passionate about the North and I'm not from the North. I'm an adopted Northerner. 
you're, I think from your accent, you're a Southerner as well, yep. flying the flag up yep. here, doing missionary yep. work yep. as well. But we're both joined by a common bond of wanting the best for the North as well. Yep. Do you sit here now and do you have confidence moving forward that the North is going to fulfil its potential? Or do you worry that it's getting a thin end of the wedge? We're still getting a thin end of the wedge. Um, but I love the fact um, that we are not afraid to shout. Um, I think we need to shout a little bit louder. Um, but yeah, I've been up in the North longer than I've been. A, I was a Southerner. Um, I did live in Kent for a little bit. Yeah. Um, Don't mention Kent because Michael <laughs> always cracks his other joke when you mention Kent. Yeah. Yeah. But exactly. No, I, th I think, I, I think we, we do get that there's still, you know, this, the leveling up It's not, I don't think it's ever going to be get as much attention um, as, as the South or, or London. But then I suppose the question I would ask, if you look at any capital city and then different parts of the country, so if you looked at America, for example, um, you, would you say that everyone gets an equal um, piece of the pie there? Um, I think, you know, we are the second um, city. Um, I know that Liverpool and Birmingham say that as well, but at least apparently... Do you know what I think the second city is? Go on. London. Yeah, do you know what? Yes, yes, okay. Yeah, I'm with that. I'm with that. Apparently it's a real manc attitude. Though. That's good, but I think, you know, I'm looking at a quote on the wall, actually. Manchester's got everything except a beach. Um, but actually there is a beach in Ermston, you know. It's like uh, by the River Mersey, but there is a beach in Manchester. But I, just going back to your point, I think what I've, I've, I've seen in the last couple of years is more Northern voices. Um, and I love the fact that actually we aren't afraid to, to say that we're not being treated fairly because we aren't. So, you know, there's, there's still lots of problems with the transport system. There's still lots of problems with the fact that actually it's more difficult for us to get investment. And don't even get me started about how difficult it is to get investment uh, as a woman. That's a different conversation. Yeah, fantastic. Naomi, thank you so much for sh sharing, sharing your insights, not only on taking in a Ukrainian family, for your role in advocating for women in tech in the North, for advocating for tech businesses, but also for the North more generally, and sharing your insights about what it's like to go on Dragon's Den. Chris? Thanks very much for coming in. Absolutely. I've got huge respect for you as well. Do need to thank our sponsors, Oscar Technology and Lily Shippen, and also the company behind this podcast. We couldn't do it without the fantastic friends at What Media uh, as well. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. And if we do become number one in Ukraine, It'll be thanks to you, but I, I admire you hugely. There was a statistic I read at the weekend that 40% of the UK have actually supported Ukraine in one way or another, more, mostly giving money. There aren't many people who actually open their doors up and take people in. I haven't. I haven't. Um, you know, and I and I look at you in thinking, actually, I'm not sure I could do that. Thankfully, there are people out there like you, so thank you very much. Can you give us a Ukrainian word for goodbye? Have you learned any Ukrainian words, no swear words? Do you know what? That's really bad. I can't remember. I know I used to, sp I used to work in Bulgaria for a bit, so I used to speak a bit of Bul Bulgarian, but good night is lekanosh. So in, is that in Bulgarian? Yeah, that's in Bulgarian. So we're now going to be big in Bulgaria. <laughs> Talk in Bulgarian. I'll tell you what we will say. The, the two words that I know is Slavi Ukraini. Dobrovecha. Dobrovecha.